What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Ski System Podcast. We are brought to you by www.getskisystem.com, the number one source for online strength and conditioning for ski enthusiasts. Whether you're preparing for the season or trying to maintain your strength in the season, getskisystem.com has you covered. A quick note that if you enjoy this podcast or there are specific guests you would like to see on the podcast, reach out to me directly on social media as I'm committed to making this a better product for you. It's through your criticisms and your feedback that I'll know how to continually improve this. So thank you in advance for your comments. Today, I sit down with Altus Program Director, Nick Ward. Nick has overseen the strength and conditioning program for some of your favorite skiers, including previous episode guests, Kyle Smain, and current Olympic hopefuls, Travis Ganong and Marie Ganong. Nick possesses a knowledge and understanding of training on what I would consider a molecular level. He is a master in his craft and communicates complex ideas and principles in a digestive and enjoyable way. It was a pleasure talking to him, and I'm already looking forward to the next episode that we record. We clearly only cover the tip of the iceberg. So without further ado, the great and knowledgeable Coach Nick Ward. Awesome. Well, Nick, thank you. Seriously, so much for taking the time. I know you're a busy man and you work with important people. So allotting the time out to do the podcast really means a lot to me. So thank you for doing that. Well, thanks for uh, letting me be here, Abe, and appreciate Carl Schmain suggesting I might be a, I don't know, somewhat interesting person to speak to. My, my, my wife often disagrees with that. <laughs> no, he definitely, you know, he had high praise. And whenever I hear from, you know, a legitimate athlete, that they recommend someone or that they respect a coach within the space. There are a lot of coaches out there, as you know, and when athletes find people they connect with, it usually means that that person is very thorough and they really know what they're talking about. And I mean, you still work with Travis and Marie. And so mm -hmm. it's proof is in the pudding. Um, how did you end up aligned with athletes like this? I mean, I think for a lot of trainers, when they're coming up, they want to be a coach the dream is to one day be able to work alongside athletes and, and put together programs and, you know, apply all the theories that you learn and really put it to work in these settings. So how did you find yourself in that space and skiing specifically? Well, I guess from a, from a general point of view, um, you know, as a young athlete, um, I was involved with professional soccer teams growing up and, um, you know, I, I thought I was always going to become a, a PE teacher. Um, most of my teachers at school at the time told me never become a school teacher. Uh, <laughs> and this, 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 this new, at the time, you know, this new fangled course of study called uh, sports science was emerging. And um, I thought, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. Um, and also, I, th I figured because I didn't make it as a professional soccer player, you always heard that, you know, well, the only way you're going to become a professional coach is that if you've been a professional in the game yourself. So the desire to be involved in sport in some way came from, well, how else could I be involved then if I can't be the coach? How can I support, you know, coaches and athletes in, in different ways? And, you know, sports science was, was emerging uh, as, as that potential, um, certainly area of study 
if not quite yet figuring out how it was applicable uh, in, in that world. But there weren't, like anything, right, once you go into it, you realise that, hey, this has actually been going on for a lot longer than you realise. It just hadn't been formalised uh, into like a degree programme at that time, because clearly, you know, coaches in, you know, the old Eastern European blocks and, uh, you know, obviously in the States and stuff as well had been, you know, engaging with sometimes just their best friend who happened to be a scientist and they had curious <laughs> conversations, right? And things that things emerged from that. So that was like, that was like the seeds and the origins. And, um, you know, in many ways, due to my own experiences as an athlete, that weren't always super positive. I just kind of felt like I wanted to to ensure there was support and coaching guidance that was different to that, which I got, um, especially around the time when I was younger, when I had a bad illness and things like that as well, and helped me to sort of get back, back into sport. There was no real support there. Um, yeah. So, you know, that, that's, that's the early foundations. And then, you know, through, through my kind of education, they gave me opportunities to, you know, be involved with, with sports teams. Um, you know, I, I was at the time in a town, a city called Newcastle upon Tyne, the Northeast of England, um, you know, and you, you just really, I guess the coaches would immediately go to the university because that's where they thought all the intelligence was, right? So right. you just, you just were part of conversations. And often as the, the student or the assistant to one of the professors, you're the person they would pack off to go and start, you know, working with these, these teams and organizations. So I guess because there was less competition for roles like this when I first started, albeit you could also say there was less interest, um, you know, you were just, it was just a fortunate place in time that, that you got your foot in the door. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to now, how, how come, how come skiing and, <laughs> yeah exactly i mean i'm from england right i mean there's not a not a snow hill within a, you know hundreds of miles um you know i i got believe it or not i as a british person you get fascinated in skiing because of a tv program called ski sunday a ski <laughs> sunday would appear every sunday of course and it'll be the highlights from all the world cups from the weekend and it has a very iconic theme tune you might want to find that out the theme I will tune absolutely. For ski sunday right <laughs> yes absolutely. so it's you know so you know you would sit there with your with your dad or your mum or whatever and you know and you know when i met my wife years later she used to watch ski sunday you know <laughs> so we have this infatuation the british with winter sports mm -hmm. um even in bobsleigh as well because you know we we, we got to watch it on tv um and then i went skiing to uh the the trinity the holy trinity of skiing this little place called uh andorra uh in the pyrenees and i just really liked it and uh then it kind of was like another four years before i got to go again um in my undergraduate degree one of our winter themes we went to the three valleys and so as part of that, then we start, you know, my job was to understand the demands of skiing and the biomechanics of skiing. So some very early seeds sown there. Um, and then I went to Canada to do my master's degree and, uh, and I went to Calgary. So again, at, I wasn't at that time, yeah. you were already working within like the sports arena. So you were already working with football teams and, and athletes and stuff like that. And you went to pursue a master's to complement your already existing profession. Yeah, we had, I mean, one of my first jobs was working for Newcastle United is like a match analysis. So I was there with pen and paper, no big 3D computers or, or yeah. videos, watching a player doing a certain thing and checking a box, you know? Right. 
Um, but my the, the the job side at the time, I was just a fitness coach in a gym. You know, right. I was just a gym instructor. Uh, but then I, you know, we we had some sort of sports science testing type thing going on with these teams and clubs. And uh, I guess I felt I certainly didn't know enough from my undergrad. I wanted to expand my knowledge. But I also felt that in Britain at the time, we we weren't necessarily um, that applied in it. So I wanted to go somewhere that I felt were, as you said, would give me more opportunities to work in the field more right. consistently. And University of Calgary came up. Um, you know, you've got to remember in 1988, they had an Olympic Games. And so that wasn't too far away in time from when I was looking at master's degree. So I went there in 94. Um, so that was quite fresh, their, their Olympic experience. And, you know, certainly that department was much heavier involved in ski technology, involved in sports science support, strength and conditioning. Um, so it just exposed me to a, an environment where more of that was going on around me on a daily basis. So it was a little less difficult to seek it out. Um, so I was kind of immersed in that because of the master's degree program. What was the the Olympic experience like for you? I remember when I was younger, the 1998 Nagano Winter Games, like this is way before, kind of like you, you know, I grew up in different places in Washington and Hawaii and New Mexico. We bounced around a lot and I wasn't exposed mm -hmm. to skiing until I was nine or 10 when we moved to Steamboat. But mm -hmm. prior to that, when the 98 games happened, that experience of watching skiing, which again, to me was very strange because I didn't have a ski hill. It was this yeah. odd thing that looked so cool and they had snow and these people went fast and they did fun things. And I remember watching Johnny Mosley's run and just my mind melted at what he was doing relative to what the other athletes were doing. And then what ensued from that and his just global like stardom as this ski star, it always stuck with me so much. And it shaped a lot of my interest as a young athlete and my aspirations of wanting to become a competitive mobile skier. Going back to Calgary, 88, legendary Olympic Games, what is it like for you being in that situation? And what impact did that have on kind of your outlook on snow sports and desire to get involved in it? Well, I guess, I mean, you know, 88, I like it when I was watching it on the TV mm -hmm. and, you know, you had, uh, as you know, Eddie the Eagle Edwards, um, mm -hmm. we had the Jamaican bobsleigh team um, and, uh, you know, TV coverage has changed an awful lot as well. You know, accessibility to see these sports, to get up yeah. close to them was way, way different. And, you know, I think it just expanded on to when I was in um, the Three Valleys, like I said, on my undergraduate degree, that was around 1992 or 93. Um, and you get a chance to go down one of those Olympic hills. Yeah. Obviously not fully prepared, but it, it was still there, right? You know, because I think it was that year when when the Olympics, they switched, right? They did a two-year switch. So it was Albeville and, yep. and um, La Plan. And um, to go down that hill and go, holy shit, this is what these guys do. Yeah. And, yeah. and have, you know, and go, this is freaking amazing. These people are just awesome. Because, you know, sometimes the appeal of looking at something like winter sports or someone in England is that it's something you're never going to get to do. So you, right. just, you just, you just like the fact of seeing it and observe it because you're never going to get to do that. Right. And yet later on, I get to, 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 to sort of amble down an Olympic right. slope and I get to go down Olympic bobsleigh runs. You know, when I started working with the Canadian bobsleigh mm -hmm. skeleton teams, right. Leading up to um, the Vancouver games, 
Um, to, so to actually find that later on, you know, these seeds are sown somewhere, right? Weirdly in your life. And this web totally. emerges that brings them together. And you go, oh yeah, I'm actually doing this. This is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's uh, powerful experiences. It's interesting how things kind of plant at some point in your life and then really flourish as you go out. When, when you're working, I, I mean, at this point, just kind of hearing your story, like you've covered quite the spectrum of athletic performance from working with football teams to bobsledding to skiers more on an individual level. All these sports have such different demands that they're placing on the athlete given environmental factors mm. or maybe like the fixed environment of a track and field versus the changing environment of a ski mountain. Um, when you're in those coaching settings, like what are some of the things that you're thinking about when you're coming up with programs for these athletes or you're rehabbing them from injury or something? How do you differentiate your focus in something like bobsledding that seems to be an all out power, you know, very short burst, quick, get as much speed as you can, and then hold on for dear life? versus something like skiing or an endurance sport like soccer? Yeah, so that's, that's a really good question. And, and you, you actually look for similarities first. You know, underpinning all these sports is the fact they take place on the planet Earth. And, you know, we, we, that we're all subject to gravity. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and environments. And so, you know, and then, so then you have the individual person um, with, with their, their kinesiology, their physiology, and um, you know, a human being is a human being. It, joints can only move in certain ways, unless you're unlucky and right. they move a way they shouldn't move. Correct. Um, and you you then you know look at the biomechanics of the sport and how they're matched to that. So you you start looking at models of of how that sport is performed, and you you go to the essentials and fundamentals that underpin all the sports and having that background in track and field and uh and, and, you know, and with the staff at altis really helps me because in many ways you could argue that track and field you know underpins every single sport um you know in, in terms of of the athletic abilities if not the exact skills um even skiing sometimes is, is akin to running um, right. You know, um, I've I've used when I was um, uh, helping the uh, level four coaches for the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Education Program, I put up a, a video of a 400 meter hurdler and a, someone skiing GS and say, what are the similarities and differences? You know, and it's a really good way then to start um, um, really digging into the anatomy, the physiology, you know, understanding the, the requirements now you made a very key point though then is what then does that sport demand of that individual and where's the gap now clearly they've been in the sport for a long time at this level so they've you know they've they found you know why they're good at it for they ha everyone has then their unique ability so while i'm talking about technical models the other key component of this i can then add all that sciencey stuff together but now it's about the individual person as well what have they experienced? What's worked well for them in the past? And that's what really got me and Travis off on a, on a good footing with each other, you know, quite early days. Um, and maybe it's a little bit different to Kyle because in his discipline, you know, strength and conditioning and the sports science, you know, in his discipline wasn't so involved, you right. know, um, whereas in the downhill uh, side, it, it, it's been there for a little bit longer. And so Travis had a bit, uh, had a history and experience of working with different trainers and different right. people over his time. And um, to simply ask him the question, 
what's worked well for you was like no one's ever bothered asking me that before right. and so, so that was a good start point you know so you've got to look at the the physics the biomechanics their unique abilities the physiology the applied kinesiology and then you also have to talk to the person themselves um, and bring that into the complexity i have always felt like the difference between a, a, an amazing coach someone who really like has it out best for their athletes and, and a trainer is kind of that exact thing is that you can take all of this stuff, this kinesiology and biomechanics and applied science and research studies and FMS screens and everything that you know, as a coach, but you can deliver it to the individual person based on what their needs are in the sport that they play without mm. confusing them about all the things that you know, whereas mm. Trainers that are newer or are trying to establish themselves, I think they struggle with that because they want to demonstrate all their knowledge. But that can be a, a double-edged sword, whereas you can take someone like Travis, right? This guy's got a million things going on in his head. He's trying to be a world-class athlete. He cannot be pre-conceived you know, about the mechanics of the exact training thing at all points of the program. Mm -hmm. So he can trust in you as the coach know that you know your stuff and come together to really perform within the gym setting so that he can optimize himself for the upcoming season. Mm -hmm. And that is, it's such an important thing. I, I always think back to when I was an athlete growing up, I was really fortunate to have uh, the Steamwood Springs Warner Sports Club does have like a training facility and you have in some cases Olympic, I, I know like the freestyle coach, Bobby Aldegary there now was former competitor he's a legend within the sport and they, they really think about the training for the athletes. But even at that level, when I was really trying to increase my performance, these things weren't really available the way that they are now, the individualization and the specialization wasn't there, the level that it is and, and is growing in availability to people. Mm. When you're training someone like I, I love that you're working with Travis and Marie right now at the same time, because two extremely successful athletes right but even there you must see in their programming some differences right some strengths and weaknesses or some things that you really want to focus on with one athlete that might not be present in the program of another person so when you're taking in two athletes like that how do you despite them being in the same discipline right how do you cater individually to them as athletes to optimize their performance in the upcoming season that's a really good question and you know and through covid times that that, that brought a, a unique challenge actually which became an awesome opportunity mm. um you know f firstly um we have to look at things as systems and you know and what what system uh, you know are they as individuals but also are they trying to train for marie switching from being a tech skier to a down speed skier um she's had an acl injury three, four years ago. Travis has always been that speed skier. He's had, you know, knee problems and surgery. So in a way, I was lucky to join their journey um, at, at the start of their kind of rehab process um, and engage with them then, at, you know, at the beginning of this sort of four-year cycle. So again, similarities, but differences. Yes. Um, uh, and, you know, Marie coming from the Canadian system where I feel they probably had a much more settled um, sort of sports science strength and conditioning input. She was a very detailed thinker. 
and and the programs you know even down to the exact tempo of the exercise she was very very focused on that um where to get travis even to warm up properly was a right. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't mind me saying that you know was 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 a was a challenge right you know because uh, but partly again you know one thing our our, our lead coach altis and, and, and our mentor says is that if the athlete doesn't understand the value of the warm-up you 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 haven't done your job as the coach you know and, and it's and it's getting them to understand the meaning that the warm-up is an assessment every single day you go and train so for both of them then with their unique situations you know how the demand of the sport um imposes itself on them as unique human beings is not the same all right even if they went down the same course and did it in the same way at the end of it is marie's left hamstring going to be a bit tighter and it's you know how travis's right hip i mean that's to simplify it right but the demands how how they then you know um um dynamically adjust and attune to those courses and stuff their body will have their way of doing it. it's still based on all those fundamentals and foundations we spoke about but how it actually brings it together and those unique demands will will be different and so you know that that's that's intriguing to go through and Again, though, you you got to be careful as a coach. You then don't start going down rabbit holes that thinking everything has to be so highly individualized and specific. There are there are there are um, generalities, what we call mailboxes that, you know, Travis, when he first started working with me, his back was always jacked up. And it's like, oh, that's just what skiers are like. You know, I'm like, yeah, we don't need to be Not like true. that all the yeah. time, right? You know, <laughs> they may so, be, so, they may be, but yeah, you know, that's a continent. Let's work on that a little bit, and and so you you realize that you know I can have them both doing exactly the same warm up, but how I might shift the emphasis between, hey Marie, you do a little bit more of this today, and Travis, you do a little bit more of that, but really the one of the things for both of them is is them to be able to develop their own toolbox over this period of time. You have to take a a pedagogical approach to it as well, a learning approach, not just a, a physical input approach to say, you know, four years time, they're at the Olympic Games. I want them to have their, their warm-up really dialed in. I want them to have their recovery strategies dialed in. They're not left guessing, like you said, that they want to have confidence. They've done everything that they can. So that confidence does, is not an issue at the start gate. You know, all they're going to do is execute. Um, and so part of this is, is, is building, say, building these kind of toolkits up over time that that will be you know individual to them um and i mentioned the covid stuff because what was again kind of interesting was that i do program with with an individual's personality in mind let's just use a really simple example um i hate squatting i love squatting well let's not let's not get hung up on whether you should squat or not right it's like what is the purpose of that exercise what what problem is it trying to solve every exercise in the program should be trying to contribute to managing a problem not just an exercise for an exercise sake yes sorry burpees what the hell <laughs> what is the, what is the point all right you mean you, wait, be... you mean you don't do that when you're skiing down a 45 degree pitch at six miles an hour i thought that's if essential you, if you're trying to be a burpee champion and of course do burpees. It, do burpees if you're trying to be a crossfit champion you need it you do those they're part of your training but you know um, what problem is a burpee really trying to solve? Right? It's and it's actually creating problems for people that are yeah. listening. It's creating more problems than it's solving. That's for sure. <laughs> so 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 that that's a big part of it. Is is you knowing both that in terms of their unique movement patterns, 
Um, and you know, part of that is the demand of the sport. It's there for again, it's their physiology, their biomechanics. What what activities and stuff can I get them to attune to? So what happened through COVID was that I wrote them both their programs. And uh, obviously, then all of a sudden now, I don't have all the sports science support behind me anymore. Um, I had moved away from bar and health, US ski and snowboard, you know, they couldn't go to Park City, we couldn't get the force plate testing done and all those kind of Marie couldn't go back to Canada and get her testing done. So all this kind of support that I had had, you know, halfway through an Olympic cycle, which you know, was informing, you know, it, it wasn't leading, but it was informing the program and was gone. And, you know, from being able to train in, in you know, these nice facilities, they're now in their house and they're kitting their facility out. This is where, again, going back to principles is really, really key. What's the problem we're trying to solve? You know, if I don't have a fancy squat rack or this or that, what, what actually, again, from a physics, biomechanical, kinesiology, physiology, what, is, what was I trying to do with that exercise? So you get, you get creative. And I'm just lucky that I was brought up in a time early in my career where I didn't have fancy gyms. I had a field, a shed you know, some tools. We had, we had each other's body weight <laughs> to, to use. So you, you do have to go back to some first principles. Now, they did have some equipment which we could utilize. So I wrote these programs for them both, again, based on what I saw as their, their unique uh, needs. And I literally looked at it the, day, the moment I was about to press send and I went, I've got to rewrite all of this. Because <laughs> it, 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 it just wasn't conducive to their environment and the fact that they were going to be training together. When they came to the facility at Barton Health in Southlake, you know, they could have their own space and they could train, but here they were going to train together in a very confined space. So I had to start, you know, I really had to rethink and, and see what I could overlap and see what, well, actually, you know what, is that exercise really that super special that the Marie can't do this one instead that Travis is doing and getting them to kind of you, me, the workouts a little bit. So that really challenged me, you know, in terms of my thinking processes, but it was a really good exercise to have to go through to actually realize there was some, there was some fluff and guff, uh, you know, in, in the program. And what happened over time then was that because Marie would warm up for a period of time, Travis had to. And then because, 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 <laughs> then, yeah, because then Travis wasn't so, um, always into the, the extreme detail, Marie got more comfortable with like, well, this is how I feel today. So therefore I'm going to do this or I'm going to adapt stuff. So I think actually that over time really, really helped evolve our, our relationship. Um, you know, Travis hundred percent really uh, valuing body preparation, warm up, mobility, um, the work that he needs to do to, to feel good because he's all about feel. We, you know, when I when I found out that he was a pretty good soccer player growing up and he liked movement like that, that really helped me understand the sort of programming I needed to give him. It wasn't just about being mechanical and lifting heavy crap underneath a bar, you know. Whether it was heavy or not, it was like, did it feel good? And so this guy's lifting, you know, over three hundred odd pounds or whatever, you know, um, he's, he's easily up at the one point eight five seven one point eight seven times his body weight on squatting the key thing is that number is is irrelevant to travis it did it feel good when i did it and it does it feels smooth his back isn't jacked up you know um and and with marie it's that little bit more of like okay the program might say this number but actually you know i can i can do it this way or i don't feel too happy about that movement today can i substitute it for a different activity and exercise and of course the answer is yeah you know it's i've just, always we, i've always liked in in that vein that the saying like strong as you need to be not strong as you can be in that there's 
there's principles that underlie every single sport, like you said, for example, like a certain degree of knee flexion, hip flexion, necessary prerequisites for hamstring length, overhead squat ability, thoracic mobility, all these things are important, whether you're a sprinter utilizing arm drive, or you're a skier in a tuck position, and you need max range of motion to accommodate for the pitch of the hill, whatever it may be. <laughs> but I think a lot of general public, and this is like my focus with the ski system is really to the general people, the average skier who's trying not to get hurt, who's trying to enjoy the sport more throughout the season is that it may be cool to deadlift 315 pounds and have three plates on the bar or to squat double your body weight. But how much do you as the skier, as the athlete, as Travis, as Marie, as mm -hmm. Kyle, what do you need in the sport when the sport is happening to you? Absolutely. And if gravity and direction are acting against your body and your edges and your ski, are they acting in a way that is going to require two and a half times your body weight in a back squat? Most likely not, but does it require strength in knee flexion, ankle flexion, hip flexion, and stability in your trunk acting against the force to resist it? A hundred percent. But I think that for the average person, the incentive should be to do something more than what you're doing now to hedge your bets, to prepare your body, to be able to handle the demands but it's okay if you're not doing two times your body weight or if you don't have a squat rack. Okay. I, I remember when COVID happened, same thing, like our gym shut down. I went into work one day, next day it was gone. There was no place to train people. There was no place to train myself. And I was like, well, okay, what am I to your exact point? And I love how you said this, like, what am I trying to accomplish? What is this movement trying to solve? Why am I back squatting? Okay. I can get a backpack. And I did this, I had a backpack and I found cinder blocks in the garage and I put the cinder blocks in the backpack and I wore it backwards on my stomach. I'm like, cool. Now I have a front squat. Mm -hmm. It's not double my body weight, but this movement is driving home the correct principles. It's strengthening me in the right way. And now if I go surf or if I go ski, I'm maintaining that strength and that movement proficiency. So it's so cool to hear that you were able to connect with these two athletes in the setting where like their training environment was taken away, but you still win on the principles. You still win yes. on the delivery of the program. And I assume, or maybe you can elaborate on that. What was their reception as competitive athletes? Because I can only think in my head, like Olympics are on your horizon. You're thinking about this. And now your coach is saying, hey, let's do, you know, eccentric bodyweight exercises in the garage. How was it originally received? And then how did their feelings about it change or evolve over, I guess, what would be the last year or so? That's a, yeah, that, that's it's kind of difficult to answer that in some respects, um, you know, because some, some problems emerge along the way. Some things you think you know what you have to put in the program. So each, each year there's, there's a development in the programming, right? And again, because they were coming through surgeries and stuff like that, mm -hmm. there's certain elements that, you know, I know I'd really like to see Travis doing this, but in year one, there was no way he was going to be doing, you know, um, heavy back squats, you know, and, you know, um, his, his Olympic lifting technique was horrible, you know, because they never really got taught it properly. It was like, get under the bar and just lift it, you know, um, and so on. But, you know, we, we, each year there was consistency. It wasn't like, again, that, you know, the, the general public world, unfortunately, are, are consumed with like, I need it to be different. I'm, I'm going to get bored 
you know earn the right to change the program by showing mastery of the exercises that you are doing that doesn't necessarily mean you can now bust out 50 reps over 30 it's can you do 50 well you know yes. and, and even within a simple exercise like a push-up there's a quality control that you want to look at within that right yeah. um so even all these hit programs most people doing hit programs are not really doing hit you know because the quality and the intensity just drops so much anyway and, and believe you me in 10 <laughs> years time we are going to be getting the medical research showing us that hit is not super smart to do five times a week um well that's another topic it's a hot marketing word that's for sure Oh yeah, you know, so I think the key thing was was consistency and elements of the movements and getting them to realize, like you said, that okay, it's not this we're doing that, but actually, as a principle, it's the same thing. And because your your movement expression has evolved now as we're progressing away from the ACL uh, surgery, and and you know, you're talking eighteen months to two years to truly um develop through that and the imbalances yeah. the work the work by dr matt jordan out of university of calgary that he's done is is showing this if you discontinue this progressive approach you drop back to previous imbalances and preferences prior to that which you had before the injury and so you wow. have to keep keep rolling this stuff on you know often why people get injured again for is just lack of adherence to to those um you know specific exercises that, that are catering for that they, they just get back to the you know the kind of very binary exercise thinking so from a general public point of view um you, you made the point of like what's representative of what you need to go but you want to go and do and for most people you know it isn't going to be i need to um um resist extremely high forces because i'm going down the hill at 110 mile an hour you know it's going to be i'm gonna go down this slope i'm probably going to take about 70 turns and i might do it in four stages right it's probably going to be my legs are really going to burn after i do that yeah. and actually my my hip mobility is so poor that i hoik myself through every turn and my shoulders and you know i'm just twisting my back so it becomes more of a mobility and more of a strength endurance focus now here's the thing we get we get very siloed in our thinking the only way to get strong is to lift you know one to three reps and lift heavy things as often as possible well you could lift something relatively heavy three times rest 30 seconds do it again rest 30 seconds do it again you're still going to get strong now that was nine reps i could give you a relative weight of nine reps you can lift that nine reps and take a little bit more rest do that three or four times you're still going to get strong you know, it doesn't have to be super maximal weight. Now, yes, the science, yes, of course, to get super strong, you are going to have to overcome super heavy resistances. Absolutely. But as you said earlier, how strong is strong enough? What are we, what's, what's the model? You know, what's representative of what you're going to do as a recreational skier? Um, what demands does the way you ski put you under? Make sure the training prepares you for that and the other thing to think about for our recreational skiers is the, i mean i'm lucky because i live on a ski hill right i get to go often as i like but right don't go and do 35 runs in your first day <laughs> you know let, let, let's let's ease yourself into it part of why a lot of people get hurt very early on is they just go and you know smash it on the first day um, yeah. so you've got to think think about loading it a little bit more appropriately as well Hopefully that answers your question. There's no, a couple of questions in there. So absolutely, it, all this. I mean, 
man, I, I feel like the hour and a half is just not gonna be enough. I could, I could talk to you about this stuff all day. I, I don't think I've been this aligned with thinking uh, with someone in a long time from training principles, like even going back to what you're saying about the warm up. I mean, every, every program on the website has a structured warm up that's tailored to what that program entails or what you're doing that day. And as mm. an athlete, as someone who's training and competing in different sports, I, I just cannot beat the dead horse enough on how valuable it is to warm up, not to work out, not just doing jumping jacks until your heart rate's up, but like warming up the muscles, the joints and the actions for the loading that you're going to do in the session. And for someone that's listening, that might not be versed in physiology or kinesiology. And that sounds complex. The, the point is just to prepare your body to do the thing that you're then going to go do. Yes. Because it's going to get heavier or it's going to get done for longer reps. There's going to be more lactic acid buildup, whatever the things that do connect on that idea. You want to make sure that your body's it's up to speed neurologically, physiologically, and ready to do the things that you're going to do. And that is true. Whether you're about to go crush it on your first day, because you want to ski yourself into ski shape or you're Travis preparing for the Olympics, like mm -hmm. the whole spectrum of potential skiers, potential athletes, really in any sport, it comes down to preparing the body and reducing your risk of injury to the best of your ability prior to then loading your body. Yeah. And it's really hard to connect the, the importance of that with some people, especially I think the longer you've been doing something, the more hardened you are in, in your ways. And especially if you've found success, that's even harder. If you've been successful doing things the way that you're doing them to change the mindset on that and understand how really valuable it is to do that. Um, well, I always like using sometimes cooking analogies on this one, right? And it's like, if, you, if you're going to bake bread, you don't just chuck a bundle of flour, <laughs> get, a, get a cup, throw it in, chuck some water in, right. mix, just, just jiggle your fingers in for a bit. And that's like, okay, it kind of looks like dough and throw it in the oven, right? There's, there's, a, there's more of a thoughtful process to, to that. You know, you've got your components. How do you blend them together? And here's the thing, right? It's okay to have a plan B. In Altis, we talk a lot about contingency plans. You know, and, and, and for our head coach, Coach Path, I mean, COVID was just another contingency plan to him because he's been through so many issues, you know, floods and different environmental changes and, and conflicts where he's been training athletes. It's just another contingency plan. So when you're doing the warm up, there's two options. See, with me, with me, with Travis and Marie, and again, when you've got therapists around you, if we see a joint isn't moving very, very well, we have the opportunity right there and then to acutely change that. Yes. Hand on techniques, or you're a fan of Kelly Starrett, the Ready State, you know, yep, bands, totally. balls, or the, all that. So we are, then you've got to put it back. Is that has that changed it enough within a bandwidth of acceptability? And now I'm now happy to load that structure because that's the program today. Correct. If the if, if after well, I always say when we worked at Barton Up, if after five minutes of intervention, you're not happy. Let's change the program for today. It's always tomorrow. We don't have to follow that, right? But so many people, because it's a it's a group class, it's a session, the coaches, they're going to make you go through it anyway, regardless of whether that hip's feeling sore today or whatever. We've got to be a little bit smarter than that, you know. I I feel. And you know, it's it's very easy to say to someone, okay, let's not do a squat and jump on that box today. Let's maybe just do a reverse lunge today. It shouldn't be that difficult for a skilled coach just to change it up for that individual on that day. A, you've acknowledged them you've heard them and you care about them. Let's not 
okay, let's just go through it and see what happens. So I think the um, the adjustments that the warm-up allows you to make to your program. Now, if you don't have therapists around you, of course, or you don't really, you're not really tuned in with a, a quick, you know, a quick trigger point, you know, a quick floss of, a, of an ankle, for example, right. you don't know that stuff, just make a better decision about your training program, plan B it. Uh, and, and again, like as you said, you just you just put a backpack on your front because you didn't have weights. That there's other movements you can do. Deload it for the day. You know, don't put super weight on. Uh, maybe just do balance work for that day. Always, always save yourself for the next workout because this is a, a long term accumulation uh, effect. Right? It, it's it's not and it's not always a, a straight line, linear upwards trajectory um you know you you can step back to take steps forward and that's such an important part about um i I think you and i both obviously agree that being on a program and having structure to what you're doing one it aims you towards the outcome the best Mm -hmm. but also it gives you purpose in each session which is really important you actually you know what you're doing you know what you're working towards but that's not to say that audibles need to be called every once in a while. It's mm-hmm. if you look at the trend of training, right. And you have your starting point and your desired outcome, you know, and let's say this is closer to competition or for the general public, it's closer to opening day or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. There's going to be points where you feel 100% and you come in, you crush it and you feel like you're the strongest person in the world. You have the greatest workout and you leave going, I should do this every single day. And there's going to be other days where you come in and through the warm-up process, you're like, wow, my knee's really bothering me because you're human. And sometimes mm-hmm. our joints just don't agree with us. Yeah. And so you scale something back. But when you look at the trend, the trend of consistency of doing the warm-ups, doing the training sessions, accomplishing the most that you can accomplish yeah. in that day, they head in the right direction. Yeah. And if you get caught up in that and you feel like you're failing or it's not doing enough, if you looked at two athletes and one just kept doing the best that they could every single time and one every time they didn't feel 100% skip the workout or mm-hmm. or didn't train i mean <laughs> it would just fall yeah, off of entirely course, of course so it's so important so, well and, and, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no i mean the, the the two young athletes i've got uh, three or four well five or six seven youth athletes yeah. that i'm that i'm working with right now and we can get into the whole messiness of working with youth athletes um at some point but um you know, with a couple of them, um, well, school starts in September for a lot of them, right, and August. So their whole life changes from the summer. Yep. So in the summer, they've been regular with their training. It's great. And then all of a sudden, bam, into school. They're up early. You know, meal times change. They can't stay in bed till 12. And, you know, the whole life changes. And, and for these two of these, I'm like, you know what? That's okay. That's just normal life. Oh, well, I'm, not, I'm missing my training. So what did you get done this week? Well, I did this and this. Okay, let's take the wins. So you've done two more things than maybe your competitor did, or you did two more things. Now, how do we make that three things? Now, we've got to remember that the training program was only one part of the system, all right? And right. it's a system in itself. What, what, where does that nest with it? Nest within, it nests within this thing called life. Mm-hmm. You know, there's stress levels, <laughs> right? There's recovery, there's sleep, there's lifestyle, there, there's what do I eat? So, you know, um, you know, the, 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 the sport itself, what we're trying to do, the, what's, what is at the top of the pyramid, you and your, your um, technical skills, abilities, all the things that go into that, and you and your biology. And underpinning all that, then, is all these other factors, right? Your lifestyle, your stress levels, as, as I said. So I know holistic is a word that's thrown around, but 
the regular briefing and debriefing process, sometimes we're looking at some of those things with more of a microscope. Sometimes we're taking a macro view, but we're always kind of moving in and out. We can't evaluate and assess everything all the time. You know, and again, part of the pedagogy I mentioned earlier is getting them used to kind of looking at their wellness, doing their questionnaires. And look, I have to be honest, most athletes are really poorly compliant with that stuff. You know, putting it on their app and all these kind of there's probably better recreational athletes because they love their Strava and they love their wearables that are way better at recording all that stuff than than these elite athletes are. And that's that's the truth, right? Um so you 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 want to you know, look at all the different building blocks that are, that are relevant here. And again, if you say like you say, you walk into the gym one day and you're just shattered, you know, because your sleep's been terrible all week. You know, that might just be life for you, and that's okay. Now, the one workout like that might make you feel a million dollars again and get you back on track. Um, but I do think there's a there's a level of false expectation that gets set about having a crusher every day, having a rocket every day, having to kick it out of the park every day, that just isn't reality. And that place is, I, I feel like a, a really weird stress. You know, I've got a actually a, a client that's just come to me last week. He was an older athlete, which I, I've decided I wasn't really gonna do that anymore. It was just gonna focus on, on sports specific kind of athletes and you know, my niche has certainly evolved into the skiing world but she she actually came with me with a problem that really interested me and again someone who wants to knock it out of the park every day and very much I'd say was type a personality and the, and the thing with them was like are you coming to me because you just want me to kind of add more layers to what you're already doing and think that's going to be the solution to the problem you know so we're going to add new stuff or are we just going to kind of tweak what you're currently doing but you're going to stay majorly in charge of it or are you looking for a deconstruction reconstruction right. and at the start of it they were way more comfortable with the idea of just influence me a little bit give me some pointers here or there by the end of the assessment and the chat it's like okay no you need to tell me what i need to do <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> assessment you know? accomplished and so yeah and so that means you've got to take some things out and that is really hard for a lot of people out there who are so used to their training program. On a Friday, I always do this. And, I'm, and, I, and I get that change is, change is tough. But if you're always doing the same thing, and we know that what follows next, and you always get the same result, you know, you're going to have a pretty sore head, keep banging it against the wall all the time. So you take on a coach like ourselves to... You know, you're giving us permission to deconstruct that and strip it down. And it's a bit like doing a remodel of your house, right? You don't just take a room out as one whole thing and bring it back in prefab and slot it in again. Like, Great, it's a room I can use. You have to really go through some planning processes and some thought processes about how do you really want to use that new room in the remodel? And same with your body. How, how do you see your body really getting, getting used? Because currently the way you're using it is, is obviously not meeting the goals or satisfying what you're trying to do. So something needs to change and don't come and hire a coach like me. If you want things to stay the same, I've, I've been in job interviews and I've thrown that at people. You don't hire me for, for continuity. You hire me because, <laughs> because you, you want change in your system and organization. And it's the same with any athlete that takes me on. Don't, don't bring me in just to add more, you know, um, we're, we're going to break this down and, and remodel this. When, I mean, I guess this is a good transition to talk about this because I going through your Twitter and, and kind of looking at some of the content pieces you put up there. One thing that stuck out to me is this idea of like 
getting players up to speed when they're coming off an injury. And I wanted to ask you about this just because I feel like it has a place in the ski world because so many people do suffer, whether they're uh, professional athletes or they're recreational skiers from ACL, MCL, LCL tears, uh, knee injuries, back injuries. When you're, when you're talking about getting someone up to speed and you did touch on this a little bit with the, the rehabilitation processes, like it's a longer process, 12 to 18 months, more than people want to accept. And Mm -hmm. most of the time when you talk to someone, you go, you know, whenever, if I'm ever screening someone, they, they say that they had ACL or MCL. And I, I asked them if they completed their physical therapy and eight out of 10 times they go, I did a little bit of it. I did about a month. And then uh, I stopped. And what they're really saying is it started to feel good enough. Right. And so then they didn't see the value, but we know from a physiological standpoint, it takes a long time for the body to recover from that, even when you're programmatic about your approach. So how do you get athletes uh, or general public up to speed coming off an injury? What's that timeline like? What are some of maybe the mental conversations you have to have with them about the seriousness of sticking to this? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And this is where um, you know, it depends on your on your environment as to whether you you know, you have a multidisciplinary team working with this individual or it's just you. And even if it's just you, that doesn't stop you sort of networking with other people and, and having what I would call transdisciplinary thinking, um, you know, looking at it from the perspective of the physician from, you know, and, and although I'm not going to understand it as much as they do, can I, can I at least appreciate their lens? And sometimes their lenses lend itself to a lot of safetyism. Let's be safe with all this. Whereas I like to say, what can we do, not what can't we do? And I think that then helps get the athlete or, 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 you know, all these people doing these skiing, they're all all athletic in some sense, right? It gets them not across the table from you, but round the table with you looking at this together. And once, once you create those expectations and that understanding from the start, then the future conversations, I think, become a lot easier. And the key thing is, is how then does the, the strength conditioning coach, performance coach, the therapist, you know, um, these are labels on our heads. Our experience and our training could be very, very different. I'm lucky I've had a lot of training in that area. But let's say I'm working with the US ski team, right, on their return to play process. There are boxes and phases. There's like nine stages to this return to play process. Right. They're not boxes with rigid borders around them. They're dashed lines because we merge and we bleed into each other, right? At some point, I'm now responsible for Travis. The, the physiotherapist isn't doesn't mean the physiotherapist no longer has any say in what I'm doing, right? But it's about the blending and merging of the stresses we're putting them under and certain activities that from a, we spoke about warm-up earlier, right? From a rehabilitation point of view or a return to training point of view, those exercises that were central to the rehabilitation of that injury become your warm-up exercises, <laughs> Yes. You know, there's a transition over. So so your warm-ups actually, you know, those things never really go away. It's like, okay, I don't need all 55 of them. Go back to principles again, which five key things, whether it's hamstring strengthening, whether it's quad tendon isometric work, you know, um, there's things like, you know, most people out here as skiers and recreational world never think about going on a leg press, put super heavy weight on that. You can push out with two legs, but you couldn't with one bring your knee back to a bit of a bend and hold it on one leg for 20 seconds. 
you know do that twice with a 20 second recovery twice a week it like takes a minute out of your workout don't care if you do it at the beginning or at the end you know you're doing a lot of stuff there to protect your knee tendons yep. you know and this is done a lot of this work is by um i can't believe his name's gonna go out of my head now uh but a professor at uc davis um you know it, th this stuff can be incorporated and maintained in your program it isn't that you've got to stand on a bosu ball for three minutes you know, all the time now going forward, right. because hopefully, you know what, you're back on your skis right now and you're doing that as part of your ski warm up and your technical one, you've transitioned that back into what you're actually doing on, on the slopes or on your board or wherever as well. So, so things just, um, they transition, you know, yes. but everything you do, there's an incubation period. There's a time at which you feel like it's right and I can go again, but you probably haven't really allowed that to incubate well enough so so that actually then transitions into a into a sustainable gain that you can then actualize in performance and and, and that that's that's the balance and the battle here so the job is um to transition those exercises you know into other parts of the program that they that they're always kind of there i always have enjoyed using components of people's again i'm not getting them in um uh, athletic performance facility mm. situation but if someone comes to me and they are post-operation and they did go through physical therapy utilizing those exercises because in addition to it being valuable it's also a very good insight into how it's feeling that day so if you're doing like terminal knee extension and physical therapy and then you're utilizing that in your warm-up on a knee dominant day it gives you a moment where you can you know how it feels in isolation it's not going to get better if it feels bad in a complex movement. So it gives you that little point of reference. And that's something that you can utilize that reference point. If you're general population, you can utilize that reference point. If you're an Olympic level athlete, or I mean, I even do this with myself to use these, these priming exercises or rehabilitative exercises to test where I'm at that day. So that to your point earlier, you can make that call is today a feeling 10 out of 10 mm -hmm. stick a hundred percent to the program and maximize my output or is today mm -hmm. uh that kind of created some pain and i know that that pain is associated with the previous injury so what do i need to do in addition to prep myself to then be able to go do it so well it's I, like that, a rehearsal right it's like let's have a rehearsal and then you know through rehearsal you figure out what isn't and what is going well and therefore you adjust and adapt. And you know, we, I came up with this little, uh, for, for the general public, I, I came up with a sequence and um, you know, built on other people's kind of ideas as well, of course, not just my own. Um, we, we called it armor, as in like, you know, putting on your armor, ready to go and do the training session, but it was A-R-M-A. -A. And the first A start, start, started for awareness. And I gave them six movements. And here's the thing. We talked about mailboxing earlier in generalities. Most people tighten their thoracic, tighten their hips and tighten their ankles. All right. And it sounds very general. So this basic six movements would start off in a cat camel position. Then you do some hip rotations. Then you'd step forward into a split stance. So you're kind of working your hips. You know, then you go into a downward dog. You know, so now you've got your ankles included in that, you know, do a little bit of rotational work. So you've kind of hit all those uh, six movements takes you six minutes, where are you today? You do that consistently, you get very, very good at knowing where, where you feel 
on, on those certain days. And, you know, not everyone wanted to start a warm-up on the floor, you know, but it's six minutes. Here's the other thing with that warm-up as well, though. When you're going through those and you're going through breathing, I also say to people, right, where have you just come from? Where are you going to? You deserve this time you're giving yourself right now. Make it worthwhile. So in that initial armor approach, park what you need to park mentally and get yourself ready for this training session. Don't Love it. try to try to avoid carrying all that baggage into this session. It might still be there afterwards and you came in with it, but let's just park it. And I, and I evolved that actually out of a process I use in my professional rugby team back in England, where we used to have blue mats and red mats. And if a player came into the warm-up and sat on the red mat, it literally meant don't talk to me. But he was also being, um, what's the word? Um, um, uh, appreciative of the other players that if he didn't go onto that mat, he would just be disrupting everybody else. Wow. Right? So it was like, if I'm on that red mat, leave me alone. They had a warm-up to go through. They would get their head into the game and then they would move on. If people were doing all their prep stuff on the blue mats, it's good. Go and, go and have some chat, have some banter. But if I'm if I'm on red mat, then don't talk to me. I love uh, that. And so and it's just part of just getting getting the mind right for the session as well. I think that that is the uh, it's it's a breath of fresh air. I mean, there are so many elements to the importance of being present in the training session. I feel like a lot of injury prevention really begins with where are you? Are you here? Are you in, are you in the training facility right now? Mentally? I know physically, like we're standing across from each other, but are you here? Are you here to train or are you at home with family right now? Are you in the competition? Are you thinking about the weekend? It, it to your point about the program and just being an element, it really is. It's an element on the map of we're trying to get from A to B, but this yeah. mental component, this breath component and this presence component is Again, whether you are going skiing for your first time and you're trying to train for it, or you're an Olympic level athlete, it is so imperative to be there to do it and, and be present. I, I had this client one time I was, he came in, he was a very busy kind of type A person, business guy. And, uh, we're in the middle of the training session. We're like 15 minutes in and he looks at his phone rang. He looks at me, he puts his phone up and he looks at me again. And he just gives me like the the nope it's over and he without getting off his phone he just left and he didn't say anything and I was like wow you know I mean that never was it more clear to me how far away someone was from the training session that they were paying for there for physically mm -hmm. uh and it just shows like you, you really do need to bring yourself to that place I love that idea of the red and blue mat like because I can just think back so many times as an athlete where like you have those days where you don't, you don't want to talk to people or you, or you do, and you're feeling social and good and, and life's good. And you competed well over the weekend and you're psyched, but respecting those two spaces within the athlete is. That was, that was the word I was looking for. That that's what that, you know, that player, that rugby player that came in and was not in the right space. He's shown respect to his teammates that I'm letting you know, don't come and talk to me. Right. You know, um, because we don't want that kind of field. So now the other interesting thing was I had a rope around this area and a whiteboard at the, be at the beginning when they walked in was like, basically it was like, you know, um, only enter if you're here to get better. Um, if, you're here, if you're here to dick around and mess about, stay outside the ropes and dick around and mess about. And that's okay as well. 
you know? Yeah. Um, but then if you come inside that area, it, you, you know, so you have to kind of create these almost like psychological um, dimensions to the space, you know, right. that, that didn't exist with physical walls you know, uh, and, and respect players like that. Now, in, in the general public environment, though, and in, in the group exercise world, they would ne they never, I don't think they get trained on how to do this. You know, how no, do I do that when I've got not. that, you know, that, that mum who's coming in, just drop the kids off at school, and they just want to start and bang, get into it. But when you think about it, they're, they're coming from, from a, maybe for want of a better word, a bit of a destructive place there. Everything's chaotic in their head. And they just want to be put back into further chaos because they haven't given themselves time to kind of, compartmentalize and shift across to here and yes. you know what most warm-ups in group classes that i see if they last three minutes you're lucky um you know my warm-ups they will last a minimum of nine or 12 minutes but because they are progressive they will get you on your feet you're getting skipping you're starting to do rudiment jumps and hops you're doing work that again rehearses and prepares you for the main session and to me 12 minutes out of an hour as someone progressively feels themselves getting ready and preparing, you know, and when that then main body of that session is constructed in a way that they, they feel like they've achieved is, is, is not a lot to sacrifice from that. Well, it's not even a sacrifice, right? It's, right. it's purposeful in the program. It's the irony is that when, when clients or athletes or people go, th go through that, when they're present and they go through the warm up, those are the sessions at the end when they sh shout their praises and they're so happy and they feel so great because you took the time to get ready to go through it on, on that note, what is, because you've had experience across so many different disciplines, mm -hmm. what are some of the biggest challenges that you experience when you're working with high level athletes? Yeah. You know, um, team sports to individual sports are different. First of all, as, as a kind of categorization and, and um, you know, we spoke about youth athletes earlier. And so that's a bit of a digression, but Partly, I'm like, you know what, when I first started working with, you know, um, winter sports athletes in a real focus sense this last four or five years, I'm like, well, these people have no structure. They're, they just go out and want to play all the time, you know. Now, now I've learned that a lot more. I'm like, please give me more winter sports athletes, skiers all the time. Because when you're trying to work with, you know, athletes that are in soccer or rugby or, or you know, these areas of football or baseball and high school kids, especially, it's all over the place, you know, uh, their, their life, their structure. I mean, high school is demanding you train five to six days a week and then do SSC all on top of that. You right. know, it's just, I, it still blows my brain. We, we didn't <laughs> even do that in Premier League academies back in England, right, as well. Um, it's just layers on layers and layers, and they wonder why the kids get sick and get so injured, right? Let's, let's look at the demands where unnecessary the demands. Sport. So, yeah, I mean, it's exactly. so easy to get burned yeah. out when you're a youth and yeah. you're, you got, yeah. you're liking the opposite yeah. sex for the first time in your life, and there's things going on at home. And it's just yeah. to then demand that much, it can turn athletes off that are really talented. You got it. So, sorry, that didn't directly answer your question, but let's, let's talk about my evolution over the first five years here, right? Because I started working with Kyle and uh, just pre and post his, 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 his knee. And I was working with Dr. Raw. And let's be honest, right? I didn't really know much about his discipline and what he was doing, right? Um, so at that stage, when I'm very early into it, working with elite athletes, um, they're either going to respect the fact that I know a lot about the human body and not their sport, and they're going to come to the table and work with me on that. And I'm ever so grateful for the likes of Kyle 
Lyle Pena, Robin Barnes, uh, you know, the US ski and snowboard team, uh, then Travis and Marie for allowing me to, to have that education and work with them on helping me understand that. Um, so early days as a coach working with elite athletes, even if you're, if you're an elite coach yourself, but you're not from that sport, the, the difficulty is, is getting a very quick understanding of, 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 of that sport. And you can only do that by working closely with the athlete. Some of people aren't going to give you the time of day for that. And that's happened yeah. to me as well. You don't know it. You don't know what I need and, and they're off. And that's, that's fine. You know, you can't take that personally. The challenging scenarios actually are um, in, in that I really want to understand what their coaches are seeing and thinking. And you don't always get that interaction because um, I'm not I'm not out on the slopes with them. I am at times. I've been fortunate right. enough to go to training camps and see a bit of it. But of course, I'm not part of a national team setup. I'm not an official coach. I don't go with them all the time. You know, we've had to figure out this relationship that is very um, remote a lot of the time, very indeterminate. So if you're a crazy control freak as a coach, you're going to really struggle. <laughs> You know, um, you know, mistakes will happen in the program and in the execution of the programs. And you cannot allow that to tumble into a chaotic situation. So you have to be ready as things emerge to recognize the opportunities, but also the dangers. Um, um, and the fact that, you know, their, their schedule is so, you know, they can go away for three or four weeks on a camp. And um, because the weather conditions are what they are, they don't get to ski or they do get to ski or the weather's going to be great for five days. Let's do five days of skiing. And I'm like, for Travis, no, <laughs> you know, but now he, he's also learned. Yeah. He's also learned to say, you know, that's going to be a lot more volume than my body needs. Right. You know? So the, the, the hardest thing at the elite elite levels probably is similar to the younger levels really is just all these factors that are flying around. Um, and, you know, I think ego exists everywhere. And, yeah. and, you know, ma managing that, whether they're a young athlete or, or a higher level athlete, um, just comes down to your, your ability to, to find a way in which you can interact and, and build that relationship with that athlete. And, and that, again, takes time. Look, there's knobheads everywhere, right? Right. <laughs> Sorry, it's it's tough, You too. shouldn't use that on your, on your podcast. But, <laughs> no, you know, it's fine. Um, but, the, but the problem, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the elite levels as well, you know, there's a lot more pressure on the line for them. There's a lot more going on. Like Travis today, I'm like, hey, can you get this done for me? It's like, oh, I've got sponsors to talk to, this, that, and the other. I'll see if I can get it done later tonight. Well, okay, under his, under his other, other stuff he's got to do away from being a ski athlete, the business of being Travis Gounod, Right. It's something else you also have to understand working with them as their coach. There's, there's the business of them being that athlete, which right. younger coaches won't, younger athletes won't have. So hopefully there's two or three things there that are highlighted. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in addition to that, I think at the elite level in anything, it's tough to stay in your lane sometimes because it's, you're constantly comparing, you're an athlete, so you're competitive. Yeah. You're constantly comparing yourself to your peers, the other people in your competition field. And if it's a, if it's a programmed rest or recovery day and it's someone else's, you know, moderate to high intensity day, it's very easy to think that that's them getting a leg up on your performance mm -hmm. and to manage that and say, Hey, you know, you have the map, you're this, you're in the right space. You're doing everything that you're, that you need to be doing correctly. 
and you're executing and you're skiing better and reminding them of all the things that are working so that they can look at that and go, Hey, you know, that's Michaela's program. That's not my program. Mm -hmm. I'm doing this. Um, comparison is a wild thing <laughs> in athletics. It is in, in life in general too. It's funny hearing you talk about like hit, you know, you know, all these buzzwords in the fitness industry. I mean, it's coming because you're getting bombarded on social media and on the internet with other people's best version of themselves or the best thing that they ever did at that moment. And the hot words, and it, it's pulling you in all these directions. It's very easy to get cloudy vision about like, what do these principles matter? You know? Well, Coach Path, you know, would also sort of talk about, um, he's more interested in what a sprinter's average best times are, not their best time. Because that's that's more representative of what of what you can consistently do. Look, we're all we're all capable of pulling out that world breaking workout, right? right? We can't do it every day. And honestly, for any of the listeners who are doing hit five times a week, right? <laughs> how many weeks consistently do you do that before you go? I'm not going to go Thursday, or after three weeks, oh, I'm going to miss a couple this week. You know, it, it, it just is not sustainable. And that's why you have to have days where, as you said, you have your high days, you've got to have your lower intensity days and, and be happy. That might be a recovery regeneration day. You go and do some yoga because you're going to feel a hell of a lot better when you go back to that next intensity day. And it's that three times a week, then truly working at the right intensities over a long period of time it's the right density pattern that then doesn't crush you so you end up missing a week because your shoulders sore your knees sore or you you still go but you just underperform you know and if you want to really understand hit go and look at martin bookites um you know hit university and look at their research into hit training and then truly understand what the what the intensity is and the physiology means you know, to actually work at those levels. So, I mean, it's semantics, right? Maybe we just got to right. call it something else. Um, Not so, to mention that even, I mean, true high intensity interval training, the majority of people don't have the work capacity to get into a high enough heart rate and stay there. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's very, very yeah. uncomfortable. I, you, yeah. you know, for sports that I play, there's application doing actual hit training and neurologically and physically is wildly demanding and it sucks and it's not fun it's definitely not something that you're signing up to go do six days a week with your buddies you know yeah. it's a yeah. training modality that has a very specific purpose in very specific instances and requires i mean talk about ability to be present and do that session it's brutal it's so brutal <laughs> yeah and I, and I and i you know i um one thing I, I do like about how the general sort of population have sort of taken on strength conditioning and, and all those things, and probably CrossFit's got to have a lot of credit mm -hmm. for, for that, is that at least now people aren't sitting in machines in gyms and just sitting there on a bench doing this, right? Yes. You know, I'm moving my arms backwards and forwards, folks. Um, you know, they are actually moving more and moving in different directions. Yes. At least they're doing a little bit of explosive work now. So I do like the variety um, you know, that it's brought to the general public, you know, and sometimes you know, they, they might get in the shapes and patterns that, um, prepare them for those potential catastrophic moments. Like I'm slipping on ice and I'm going backwards, but I'm now able to pull myself back down. Right. There is those kind of, you know, 
living in this environment in the mountains activities of daily living a little bit more precarious than if i live in san francisco <laughs> right you know um, um but um you know I, so i am pleased that that there's more broader kind of exercises rather than you just go on a, on a multi-gym and uh, and sitting machines it, it's brought yeah. more and i'm not going to use the word functional movement here because that is very misappropriated term but at, at least they you know, they're getting exposed to lots of different patterns of movement and hey if it's enjoyable and it's helping with stress levels and you're getting out in nowadays as well now nowadays listen to me in the community and you're able to be around <laughs> people you know that that that's a big thing and and, and that, that that those are are, are are different sort of goals that are representative of, of, of that group of people, very different to what I'm used to, again, you know, what I'm aiming for in, in my sort of elite athlete population. So I do, right. I do appreciate it. I think that the CrossFit specifically, you know, it's, it's been demonized in so many different ways, but uh, having worked in like a commercial gym, I mean, we have CrossFit to thank for bumper plates and barbells. We have CrossFit to thank for 15 by 15 foot space where you can do Turkish get-ups and swings and snatches and, these movements are, they're present in mm -hmm. people's vision, like they see them happening. And then there's also, you know, CrossFit brought forward the female competitor, the athlete lifting yeah. conventional strength movements, which I think is huge because it, it mm -hmm. did normalize a very crucial part of strength and conditioning for female athletes. Whereas in some places in the past, it was not seen the same way. Mm -hmm. And it's been special to see that all come present into the commercial. You're right. I mean, you, you go back to like the nineties when I was working at body zone gym in Newcastle, right? Yep. You know, all the women went and did the step class and aerobics and all the guys were sat on the weight machines. Right. You know, that's, that was the way it was. Right. And like, as you said, hundred percent, it's now, it's now way, way, way more adaptable, way more mixed, you know, it, it's, you know, and it's understanding of the physiology. I was only speaking to the tonal guys the other day and, um, you know, we often sort of talk about how little people incorporate any kind of speed agility sort of training into their practices. And because right. people are still in this mindset, it has to be aerobic, 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 you know, there's still a huge need, unfortunately, and this is always the tough one to educate the general public on right. and what really will work. And, you know, you can't really do that on a public health scale. All you and I yeah. can do is look at that group we've got in front of them, help them the best that we can and hopefully, you know, help them get better and improve, you know, towards their goals. Absolutely. I, you know, but I want to be respectful of your time, but there's one thing that I would love to hear about from you too, just with, um, I've just kind of reviewed through uh, Altus and what you guys are doing. It seems like such an amazing platform. And one thing that stuck out to me was the, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but the brain bioceuticals living lab, what are you guys doing there? It seems uh, it's like very intriguing. So I'm curious to see what that is and, and it's exposure to athletes. Well, um, so right now, nothing because we couldn't get a group of people to um, take the brains products because of COVID and, gotcha. and to assess all this, yeah. but ultimately brains, uh, a, a, a British company, um, they, you know, with the, changing all the rules around cbd and, and those mm -hmm. things they they have certain products that we are you know exploring their their suitability and, and their applicability to athlete performance 
Um, okay. And so that that is part of the living lab. And you know, we are so devoid of research that's actually done with elite athletes. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so a lot of the research that, you know, I I can look at it to maybe give me an idea or thought, but it's never really done on high-performing athletes or any skiing itself, right? How much actual published information is there out there on the forces and the bike? Very little. Right, for, for sport. You know, I mean, I'm sure the Swiss and the Austrians have got it kept in their vaults, right? right? You know, <laughs> it's the same with bobsleigh and stuff like that as well. But actually, you know, compared to other sports, there's very, very little that actually is available for an up-and-coming coach to get a true representation of what the elite athletes do. So our living lab also extends beyond just the brain's work is to actually try and do research that is representative of these elite populations. So the 1080 motion uh, equipment as well that we have is another example um, of how we are trying to share with people you know, what we are finding from our, from our work with truly elite, elite athletes. I love that. We, I mean, we need that in, it's crazy. The mar, you know, marketing attachments for products to the fitness industry and just claims that you hear in general about performance increases without the, the thought about what are you actually talking about increasing? Like is, are you going to get a 5% maximal force production over a six month period because someone's rubbing CBD oil on their knee joint? but that's the claim. So it, to, to see you guys investing in athletes in producing good research to present to the public and actually clear up some of these areas, that's really exciting. Any other projects under the hood that you guys are working on over there? Well, Altis as a company are currently re- relocated to Atlanta. So mm-hmm. they've moved from Phoenix, Arizona to uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Um, we've you know gone through a period of, of recruiting uh, a number of athletes now for the track and field over in Atlanta too. So that's been a successful process there. Um, can't tell you where we're going to be based yet because that's still a little bit under wraps. But Fair. where we're going to be based <laughs> is 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 really truly exciting. With a long long term view of of, of working um, with someone there for developing our own space and facility as well. Um, we. The, ma- the major developments over this last year, we have a lot of online digital courses. So we were very lucky to, to already be in that sort of space and more people took interest in things like our foundation course. And even for those people who are, who are general public sort of fitness trainers or whatever, it's still a, an incredible resource to go through, like you said, really debunk the myths, go through the solid understanding of essentials and fundamentals. But I've been working on mentorships the last year and uh, developing a, uh, uh, sort of a very high-end intensive uh, mentorship with coach Dan Paff which is our phase three one and then our phase one mentorship has been more introductory and, and what's been cool about that is not introductory about this is a squat this is what it does it's like do you know what critical thinking is how is what's your social awareness right. you know where's your operating yeah. system yeah. so it's so it's been it's been those bits that join all your you know, your certifications and all that stuff together, but actually helps you be a better coach. So I've had a lot of fun uh, meeting a lot of people around the world and coordinating up those mentorships uh, right now. So that's been, been pretty awesome too. That's phenomenal. Well, Nick, again, you know, thank you so much for being on here. I, I, I feel like I could literally talk to you for hours about strength and conditioning and the ins and outs of the industry and everything working with athletes. It's uh, definitely a breath of fresh air. Um, but before we go, kind of 
shameless plug, like where can people find you? Uh, if they want to reach out to you, how can they get a hold of you? Where can they listen to you? Well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for having me. And I know we sort of broad brushed a lot of topics today. And um, certainly if any of your listeners, you know, pick up on a particular topic they'd like you and I to, to talk more about absolutely. so we can go deeper, absolutely feel free to pull me, pull me back in again. Um, you know, if you live in the Lake Tahoe area, you might even get to see me on Lake Tahoe TV. I've, wow. I've pivoted and, and I, I, <laughs> I, I'm trying something new by being a TV host uh, for a while, just outside my comfort zone. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you can find more about Altis at www.altis.world. Um, a lot of you know, a lot of free resources on there, uh, and then also obviously on Twitter and Instagram, you can just go at Altis if you're interested more in our education stuff at Altis Edu. Me personally, I'm either at Coach underscore Nick Ward or at Nick Ward underscore Coach, and uh, you can DM me there and uh, find out you know any questions or anything more you'd like to, to discuss. Yeah, happy to uh, to help out where I can. I'd love to actually get a, you know, get a, some kind of, um, I mean, our project with Tahoe and Barton, obviously, you know, we got severely sidetracked with COVID and we had a number of endurance groups supposedly coming here. But what I really liked actually was the, the kind of the coordination with other trainers and S&C coaches. And, you know, Lake Tahoe is an amazing place to come and visit. So if we ever can do some kind of like mini summit here at any point, oh, just get a bundle, bu bundle of us together, that that would be awesome as well. Cause I, I love sharing and learning. I don't want to be isolated you know, uh, you and me and, both. Uh, yeah, so let's uh, maybe think about something like that as well. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Nick. A pleasure. Uh, I'm really glad that Kyle connected us. And yeah, yes, too. absolutely. To any listeners, if there's something that we touched on, you want to know more about, you want us to dive into, we will absolutely do an episode in the future. So thank you so much, Nick. Cheers, Abe.